going to continue today at the third, um, which relates to the doctrine of baptism. So let's read chapter 6 of Hebrews, verse 1 and 2, just to familiarize ourselves. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection and maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works, of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. So we want to look at the doctrine of baptisms and this incorporates the elementary principles of Christ. That's what we're considering as we go through these spiritual foundations that relate to the Christian life and Christian living. Now this doctrine of baptisms is uh, is, is very important for us to understand. And mind you, there is uh, debate and confusion that surrounds it. And so I'm going to uh, proceed on the way I understand it this morning and I'll let you uh, examine the Word of God for yourselves and I'm sure, no doubt, for us that are with us this morning, many have. But uh, if I was to say, how many, because the Scripture says baptisms in the plural, Okay? The doctrine of baptisms. So if I was to ask you, how many baptisms are there? Anyone want to venture and have a, <laughs> have a, have a shot? Uh, we'll re- let's reveal our cards this morning. Come on. <laughs> two, two, okay. What was it back there? Uh, you'll see. <laughs> okay. All right. Okay. I'll reveal my cards today too. Praise the Lord. But the doctrine of baptisms. Now, in the inaugural sense, uh, inaugural meaning and representing uh, the formal induction of, uh, in the first instance, I, I believe that, uh, that there are three. <laughs> Three baptisms, but in actual fact, you could argue that there's four, and uh, and we'll touch on, upon the fourth as well. Although I don't believe it's an, an, an inaugural baptism as revealed in the Scripture, but nevertheless, there is a baptism uh, that, that we will consider. So um, there are some of the things that we're going to look at this morning. Now, the, to the member Paul writing to the church in uh, uh, to the Hebrew church here, and to the Hebrew Christians. He is uh, remembering that each of these doctrines have their roots within the Old Covenant. And so they are in the First Testament. So they're well aware in various concepts that relate around these particular doctrines. So when we talk about the doctrines of baptism, this is not something that is unfamiliar to them. And so, um, uh, you know, the word baptismos uh, that is translated as baptism... The, the word there in our text can also be translated as washings and so they would be familiar with various aspects of water and purification and even baptism. We find that in historically as well. 
Um, and not only that, before we understand believers' baptism and other aspects of baptism that we'll see in the scripture, there was John's baptism of repentance when he first, the forerunner of Jesus Christ. And so the whole issue of baptism is not something that was foreign to them. But obviously there needed to be a context. And so in, in, in we, when we talk about baptisms, there are various, when we talk about washings, we're talking about uh, being dipped and immersed and we'll get to that in a moment in terms of what the word baptised means and various uh, uh, aspects that are associated with the word. Nevertheless, it's, uh, there is various references to the word baptism in Scripture. In Acts chapter 22, verse 16, Scripture says, Now why are you waiting, talking to these new believers? Arise and be baptised and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. So there's this concept of washing, Okay. And so, um, uh, now, we'll, again, we're going to put context to this, but there's a reference here just in, in that sense. And so, we have these references in the Word of God, which we're going to go to, but as I said, I want to consider with you four baptisms and three that are inaugural in the Scripture, as I understand it. And they are being baptised into Christ, water baptism, baptised in with the Holy Spirit and the baptism of suffering. Okay? So let's look firstly at being baptised into Christ. Because this issue of being baptised into Christ is the foundation. It is fundamental. This is imperative because everything else is, uh, stems forth from that. So you can argue in one sense uh, uh, that, you know, because you'll hear people say, well, uh, there's only one baptism. And uh, even if there's, uh, we can talk about two being the water baptism, then you'll say, well, that's only reflective of the one anyway. So, uh, you know, it's rooted in one baptism. And in Ephesians, uh, uh, so being baptised into Christ is really the cornerstone of the doctrine of baptisms. And in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 5, you find these words, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all, and in your. Now, either the Bible's contradicting itself or there's context. And the answer is there's context. <laughs> okay, because in Hebrews it talks in the plural sense, baptisms. But here we find in Ephesians the one baptism. And so but the context being is when you understand the baptism that is being referred to in this instance, then yes, it is one baptism in the sense of being baptised into Christ in relation to salvation. Not, it's not you know, one plus one plus one, you know, understand the context of water baptism and as we'll see, baptism in the spirit and baptism of suffering, but these are not, uh, uh, you know, they don't make up the foundation of, uh, of, of uh, salvation. It's being baptised into Christ. There is one baptism in that sense as we will see in the word. In 1 Corinthians, now there's a few scriptures we're going to go through as we go through this, but it's best we do it in terms of illustrative 
and uh, establishing the truths associated with these various aspects. But 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one Spirit. Again, they have this emphasis, one Spirit, one body. And we've been baptized into one body. And this word baptize or baptismus in the Greek, it means to dip, to be fully immersed. That's why we, when, we, uh, when, we make, when we teach and talk about baptism, we, we, we reject the whole concept of sprinkling and christening and, and all the various aspects that are associated with so-called baptisms because the word it means to, Im- to be immersed. That's why when we have a water baptism, we dip the person into the water. And so in the same sense, we are, being, we are immersed into Christ. We are baptised into him in relation to our union with Christ being the emphasis that is identified here. And so, who is the baptiser here? The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 12 that the Spirit, by one Spirit we were baptised into one body. So the Spirit is baptizing us into Christ and this is really what we call the born-again experience. This is being born of the Spirit. And this is how this takes place. Now turn with me to Romans chapter 6 and so we've been going, I know that people are studying Romans and we've just gone through chapter 6 ourselves but it serves the perfect purpose to understand this whole issue of the baptism into Christ. Now this is very, very important. But in, chapter, in Romans chapter 6, verse, verse, uh, um, uh, verse 3, Paul writes and he says, Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. You see, one of the sad things, and I was guilty of it uh, for, for many years and just not being enlightened by the Spirit of God for, for a period of time, but so many refer to this, and if, 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 I don't know about you, but where I, my background, when we studied water baptism, there would always be this reference to Romans chapter 6. And, um, and, so, and so, so, so much so that you would read that and you would, think it was talk, you, you would begin to think it was talking about water baptism, but do you know that Romans chapter 6 has nothing to do in the fundamental sense with water baptism? By extension, it has its application in a secondary sense, as does other scriptures, but Romans chapter 6 is talking only and primarily about our baptism into Christ. Our union with Christ, our being immersed into Christ and that is the baptism, that's the cornerstone, that's the foundation that is so critical for our understanding as we deal with this, especially in these elementary principles of the doctrine of baptisms. This is the reality of our union In Galatians chapter 3, verse 26, the scripture says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. 
For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, there's neither male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. But we have been baptized into Christ. And that is so important to understand our position. That is so important for us in our identification with Christ. And so it is so critical that as we look at the, the cornerstone of baptism that you understand that we have been baptised into Christ, into his body and by the Spirit of God, being born of the Spirit of God. And what a, what a wonderful reality our union with Christ is. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Don't you know that your, temple is the, uh, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who dwells in you? We're talking about a union. Jesus prayed in John 17 and he talked about that we may be one, I in them and they in us. Uh, that we're, Like we are one, they may be one. These are, these are amazing concepts, amazing thoughts and they are real. They are real. And so that is, and again I'm just going to track through these and without going, I'm just going to skim through them and lay the foundation. But here is the first baptism, being baptised into Christ. Then there is the second baptism, which we're all familiar with, which is the being baptised in water. Now, being, now uh, we know that being baptised in water, though we understand it being a command and an instruction by God through Jesus Christ and the Great Commission, again, the, the, the baptism in water is only symbolic of our baptism into Christ. That's what the water baptism also represents when we make a spiritual application of it and we talk about, you know, uh, when we use the the water as a grave and now being buried and alive in Christ Jesus. And so we take the, the, the context and the ritual of the water baptism and we make a spiritual application of it, but all it is doing is representing the fact of our identification with our baptism into Christ Jesus. That's why when we talk, when you make Romans 6 only talk about water baptism, you are, in a sense, you are missing, and make that primary, you are missing uh, the full revelation of what's being taught as the foundation stone of being baptised into him. So, we, so, so again, uh, water baptism is an, in, an inaugural um, uh, a baptism that relates to our obedience to Christ. Why? Because the scripture tells us that Jesus gives us the great commission in Matthew 28 uh, verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. And so Jesus is giving the instruction, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Now this is very important to understand because there's, you know, again, when it comes to water baptisms, there are those that will say, well, um, you know, um, we baptize in Jesus' name only. And this is a contention amongst uh, Christian circles. Why? Well, you know, in Acts 2.38, now here's the... Here's the instruction again about water baptism. They said, what must we do? And Peter said to them, repent. There's the first one we've looked at that. 
Let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Now, people look at that and they say, well, baptize in the name of Jesus Christ. So that means that when we baptize, we baptize in Jesus' name only, right? No, that's not what it's saying. It's, it's, it's being baptized into Christ. And when you baptize into Christ, you are baptizing into him and it is in the name of the Father, the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That is, that, that is how this plays itself out. This is how it is to be understood. We are being baptized into Christ and we'll establish this further in a moment. But look, let's look further at some of the issues of, of water baptism in Scripture. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21... Peter is talking about Noah and the ark and he's talking about um, uh, the, uh, obviously the judgment of God in which the, the earth was flooded. Now listen to this and Peter says there is also an antitype which now saves us. So he's, making, he's drawing upon a type and he says baptism. So he says not the removal of the filth of the flesh but the answer of a good conscience towards God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, um, now it wasn't baptism that, uh, it isn't baptism that saves in that sense because we understand, as the preacher preached this morning, uh, Noah was in the ark. Who is the ark? The antitype of Christ. We are in Christ. So it's not the water that's the big issue, amen. It's being in the ark that's the issue. Because that's where we are saved, amen. That's where we are secure, hallelujah. That is where uh, salvation is. We have also the Red Sea in Scripture. When, they, when the Israelites came out of Egypt and they came to the Red Sea and God departed the waters and uh, they went through the waters of the Red Sea and you could uh, make the reference to the symbolic of baptism. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1, the Bible says, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all of our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now, is it talking about water baptism? It's talking about, in this instance, they were all baptised into Moses. But Moses, again, is another type of Christ. We are baptised into Christ. And when we talk about the issue of water baptism, it is only symbolic of the greater spiritual reality and truth that underlines it. And so we must understand the place and purpose of water baptism and who is it that baptizes in water well you know it can be a pastor or it can be a deacon or an elder or whatever in the church or whatever the case may be it can be anyone really uh in that sense but um but here we have it uh we have the the truth and reality of water baptism in scripture now let's move on I want to consider with you the third, and that is the, the baptism in with the Holy Spirit. Now, I know this is a contentious issue for some, and those that have already put up their fingers with the two, 
okay? But as far as, I, I mean, my, in my understanding and study of the Scriptures, it is, in my, uh, it is clearly, in my opinion, it is clearly taught and separated from other baptisms. It's clearly identified. It has a different truth. It has a different purpose. And it is uh, clearly referred to within the Scriptures. And I, will, I just want to deal with it in a fundamental sense and we'll cover some various aspects of it just to bring some clarity but nevertheless, uh, this issue of being baptised with the Holy Spirit uh, is something that is separate from and, uh, and uh, subsequent to the regener- regenerating work of Christ in the heart or in being baptised into Christ. Now, if you can... Um, I mean, John the Baptist spoke about his baptism of repentance in water, but he said there's coming another who will baptise you in the Holy Spirit or with the Holy Spirit and fire, mind you. But if you go to Acts 1, if we can go there, I just want to make a, a reference because the Bible speaks of this as it relates to the early church. And in Acts chapter 1, you'll be familiar with the scriptures, but Jesus himself is speaking and he says in verse 4, And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water. But you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, just think about it. Now, I said that it is the baptism with the Holy Spirit is distinct from and subsequent to being baptized into Christ. Now the reason, one of the reasons why I say that is because uh, had the, the question, if I was asked the question, had the disciples received the Spirit by this point? In John's Gospel, chapter 20, verse 22, it says, uh, if you just go back, if you're there, you can look at the previous page, and it says in verse 22, and when he had said this, Jesus, he breathed on them, and he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. And so this is obviously because they couldn't, in in the sense of the new birth, in the sense of the regenerating work, uh, that couldn't occur until Jesus had completed uh, his uh, work on the cross and his resurrection and ultimate ascension and and all of these, uh, ascension, but uh, obviously his resurrection. And so it was in that sense that then Jesus, he breathes on them and says to them, receive the Holy Spirit. But yet, in Acts 1, he's now instructing them to wait to be baptised with the Holy Spirit. Now, what is it that's distinctly different here is is what relates to the purpose of the baptism. Now, this has to be understood. This has to be clarified. Because there is a distinction. See, what is the purpose of the baptism with the Holy Spirit? Is it to speak in other tongues? Well, speaking in other tongues, as we'll see, can be an, an evidence. I, I know that the, the classic Pentecostal teaching is, is the initial evidence, and so, but I don't fully adhere unto that. But I do believe that it is obviously an, one of the evidence because it's clearly taught in the Scripture and it's there for us to observe. But at the same time, it's not, the primary purpose of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is not to speak in tongues. It is to receive, the primary purpose of the Holy Spirit is revealed to us in verse 8 of Acts chapter 1 when it says, But you shall receive power 
when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and unto the ends of the earth. So there you have the fundamental reason for the baptism with the Holy Spirit is to receive spiritual power to be a witness for Christ. This is reiterated in Luke's Gospel. Jesus, again in Luke 24, verse 48, and he's giving them final instructions again, and he says, And you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endured with power from on high. You see, it's clear. The baptism with the Spirit relates to the enabling power to do the will and work of God. And so spiritual power, so in, in essence, it's about spiritual power through spiritual gifts. And that's what is being enacted and inaugurated on the day of Pentecost, as well as, in the, in the, in the greatest sense, the birth of the church. Now, I have referred to the baptism with the Holy Spirit in an an inaugural sense. Why? Because, and this is, I don't want to go into details of this now, but we will consider this further next week because we're going to look at the second aspect of this, which is a laying on of hands. And this is where there's lots of confusion in Pentecostal circles and, and some of the nonsense that takes place. But because there is one baptism with the Holy Spirit, And what we find is we find that there are many feelings. You know, I know that there's been lots of contentions over the years. People write about it and they talk about the second blessing and they talk about uh, this and that. And as one man wrote, he said, uh, who was not um, uh, so much an adherent to Pentecostal teaching, but he said, well, you know what, it's not about a second blessing. Never, we've never defined it as a second blessing, but nevertheless, uh, it's about a third blessing, a fourth blessing, a fifth blessing. And so there's one baptism, but there's many feelings is how... We, we, we teach it, how it is, I understand it, it being revealed in the scripture. And another thing to note is that the ministry of the Spirit cannot be confused in relation to power and the purpose of being witnesses and preaching the gospel and doing the work of God. It cannot be confused with his other activities relating to the individual believer in terms of the work that he does in in sanctification, in guiding us, in teaching us and uh, forming Christ in us and all of those things. Okay? So let's consider for a moment the issue of speaking in tongues. Because when people talk about the baptism with the Holy Spirit, you know, for those that are familiar with it, there is that which relates, well, the initial evidence, or as that is referred to, but we talk about at least the, one of the evidences, if you want to call it, is that of speaking in tongues. Now, why is that said? Is that just taken out of, the, out, of the, out of the air? No, because if you read the book of Acts, there are various references that give us insight to the fact that when they were baptised in the Spirit, they did speak with other tongues. And so, therefore, it is important to acknowledge that and to um, uh, uh, identify because it has importance to us. 
You see, on the day of Pentecost, if you can go to Acts chapter 2, and when the Spirit of God was poured out, and they, they were filled with the Holy Spirit, in verse 4, and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, they, obviously those that had gathered on this particular festival feast, they had, were there and they were observing this phenomenon. And then Peter gets up and he speaks and he says in verse 16, Acts 2 verse 16, but this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. And on your men servants and maidservants I will pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath. Blood and fire and vapour of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. But you see, here is a, a result of spirit. Here's the coming of spiritual power and the, the manifestation of spiritual gifts that were being poured out. And we begin to see that as you read the book of Acts because you begin to see this supernatural dimension. You begin to see this supernatural phenomenon that is associated with the pre preaching and proclamation of God's word. And it's not just those that at various stages spoke with other tongues, but it was those that prayed, laid hands on the sick and they were healed. Amen. And there were miracles being done in the name of Jesus Christ. And there was a manifestation of God's power and that was leading to the conversion of a great many. And this... Uh, you know, and, and so, and let me say this, church, I, it, it did not come to an end. I still believe in miracles. This, when, you know, it, it, people talk about these things have ceased. And, uh, well, it hasn't ceased. We're still living in this very prophecy that Peter referred to in, uh, in relation to Joel and it has further application of that which is future and we are in the church age. And these things still uh, um, are to manifest themselves. And if you study church history and these things, you will begin to identify that uh, there have been many manifestations of God pouring out his spirit, not just here as we read it in the book of Acts, but through the course of, the, of church history itself with various phenomenons and so forth manifesting and taking place. But you see, the, the issue is... Uh, and that we're considering is that is uh, um, is it speaking in tongues? Now, in Acts chapter eleven, verse fifteen, we know that this has to do with. Did I say 11 verse 15? Um, oh, that's right. So 11 15. And as it be, uh, Peter's uh, defending and he's recounting the experience and he says, I be, As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And there we have that emphasis of uh, again, that's, uh, that is related to this issue of the baptism. 
But we know that when the baptism uh, came in, in relation to Cornelius, the scripture says that uh, they began to speak with other tongues. It says in verse 44, chapter 10, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon them. All those who heard the word and those of the circumcision who believed were astonished. And many came with Peter because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out upon them as upon the Gentiles. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Go to Acts 19. Uh, it says, and it happened, verse 1, and it happened while Apollos was at Corinth, that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus and finding some disciples, he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, we have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And again, there's a, there's, I'm not going to go into all the, the context of this. But I'm just highlighting the, 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 those fundamental points. In verse 4, then Paul said, John indeed baptised the baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptised in the name of Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ. And when Paul laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. And so we can't just discount that, that reality. But you see, even though we see that the, as a result of the baptism there is an evidence that one of the manifestations is speaking in tongues, but does that mean that everybody speaks in tongues? Because Paul asked the question to the, Corinth, to the Corinthians, he says, do all speak with tongues? Or well, he could have just said, uh, uh, have you all been baptised in the Holy Spirit? But he didn't say that because uh, he was making an emphasis and I believe that uh, uh, though I am a promoter and I, I speak in tongues, I, think, I don't think that it, we should be uh, uh, just putting it down to everybody has to speak in tongues because we can become, we can take a truth that is related in scripture and we can take it to an extreme and then it can become an error and unfortunately this is one of the things that has happened in relation to Pentecostal experience and Pentecostal teaching. Uh, I know that there are people in a, num a number, actually I, I didn't, I mean I used to come across people from the uh, Christian Revival Centre when I used to witness on the streets and have my debates with them there about uh, the baptism. I and mean, I was a Pentecostal and I'm arguing with them about the baptism <laughs> of the Holy Spirit, you know. But for good reason, because there's a number of people here uh, and I've come across over the years here in Kingsway that have come from that background. And the reason why it is a false teaching because it, it is literally, it is a truth taken to an extreme by which the evidence of salvation of you receiving the Holy Spirit is that you speak in tongues. And so it gets taken to the extreme that unless you speak in tongues, then you are not saved. And that is not what the scripture teaches. And so that's how these things can, these truths can be can be taken and misapplied and then all of a sudden the gospels change. So no longer is it Christ being baptised into Christ and Christ alone, but now it's Christ plus this and Christ plus that. And so, and, and so and, unless you're uh, evidencing these things, uh, then you, are, you don't have the Spirit or you are not filled with the Spirit or you're not baptised with the Spirit or you're not saved. And I don't think that that obviously is, un that is unacceptable. And so, but let me say this, I speak in tongues. 
I know that may be offensive to some, but, and I know that it comes from my Pentecostal background, but, and I reject some of the extreme and many extreme aspects of Pentecostalism, and I've had to navigate through those things over many years, but as I, as I hold fast to uh, the, the, those fundamental truths, uh, I still believe, amen, that speaking in tongues is legitimate spiritual gift and a practice that is to be by the believer and desire spiritual gifts. I know that tongues is, you know, well then you'll say, well, tongues is the least of them all and I understand all of the context and yes, you can put an overemphasis on things. I utterly agree. But as we always say, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. You know? But we're, again, in saying all of that, we're bringing it back to the issue of the baptism with the Holy Spirit. And though tongues has a connection in a certain sense, the primary purpose of the baptism is not to have some wonderful, feel-good, uh, you know, glorious experience. It is to be filled, amen, and to be, have boldness to speak speak and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Acts 4, here it is for the second time. Now they are being, uh, the Bible says that they were, uh, they were in the midst of persecution and they were f- facing uh, severe persecution and they prayed and they saw, Lord, grant us boldness to speak your word. And the Bible says that the Spirit of God shook and came and then they got up and, and they, great grace was upon them and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Power. That's the anointing. That's the power. That's the baptism. That's being filled in that sense with the Holy Spirit. And it's there. So, again, there's so many different aspects that we can touch upon here, but I'm just going to deal with it on on that level this morning. But these are the three inaugural baptisms that I, uh, I, I, I understand in the scripture. But I did refer to a fourth and that relates to um, what I refer to as the baptism of suffering. Now, it's important for us to understand this because if we talk about this and when we talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, everyone's talking about, you know, all the good stuff or the good feelings, as in, you know, so-called Pentecostalism in that sense. But yet, really, the baptism of the Holy Spirit led to a baptism of suffering. And a baptism of suffering is something that we see within the scriptures itself. And not many, too many people want to hear about this baptism, but it's there and it's part of the Christian experience. In Luke 12, verse 49, Jesus says, I came to send fire on the earth and how I wish it were already kindled, but I have a baptism to be baptized with and how distressed I am till it is accomplished. So what baptism is Jesus referring to? In Mark chapter 10, verse 38, we have the, we have a, in chapter 10, we have where the sons of Zebedee, where the mother comes and says, you know what, I want me two boys, one at your right hand, one at the left, and, and, uh, and so forth. And then Jesus makes a response to them, and he says, Jesus said to them, you do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they said to him, We are able. 
Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink the cup that I drink. And with the baptism I am baptized with, you will also be baptized. What is that baptism? It is a baptism of suffering. That's what it is. You will drink the cup that I drink. The baptism that I'll be baptized with is a baptism of suffering. The suffering servant that was foretold within the prophet Isaiah. And so we have this. And so remember when Paul the Apostle uh, was uh, knocked off his high horse and then God speaks to Ananias and says, I want you to go to him. And then uh, they have an exchange of words. Then God, Jesus says to uh, Ananias in Acts 9 verse 16, he says, I will show him, referring to Paul, I'll show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. I'll give him a baptism, a baptism of suffering. That's what, that's what Jesus is saying. I'll show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And really when we talk about the Christian life and we talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit and power to be a witness, I mean, it's not a, it's, you know, people say, oh, it's about us being the head and not the tail and, you know, and, you know, we're the prosperous and we're to be on top, we're the rulers and the kings, we're the, you know, all the nonsense of, of, uh, of dominionism and so forth. That is not what it's about. We're talking about a baptism of suffering. A baptism of persecution. A baptism of rejection. You know, that's not pleasant. When you, when you, walk, when you walk and preach Christ and talk to people and everyone thinks that you're crazy and that you're a nut and in other parts of the world people are suffering, people are dying. People are being persecuted. They are suffering for the name of Jesus Christ. They are walking in a baptism of suffering. Paul said we must through much, through much tribulation we enter the kingdom of God. And all that live godly will suffer persecution. And so, do we desire this baptism this morning? <laughs> no, it's not, it doesn't groove... You know, if I, you know, we have those in, in modern circles now that talk about, you know, um, uh, various things, and they say, oh, it's it's a it's about a baptism of pure happiness in this life, is it? It's about it's about your best in this life now. Your dreams. God has a plan and a purpose, and He's going to give you whatever your heart desires. Oh, it's a baptism, and he's a he is a, like a little you know in the sky, just like a little genie, just give me this, give me that, bless me, bless me, Lord, bless me, Lord. But you know what? The baptism of suffering. Where did that come from? That doesn't fit in with our doctrine. That doesn't fit in with my experience. We're supposed to we're the king's kids. That's right. You betcha. We are, and we'll follow the footsteps of our master, because Jesus said, yeah. You're right, you will be baptised with the baptism I'm baptised with. And so we, as our testimony for Christ, we'll, we will walk in, in, in the same way. But the Bible says we, we, uh, we, don't, we, consider the, we consider the sufferings of this present time not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. And so we, we understand that even in this life now, as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so too does the comfort of God even now. And that is victory. That is joy. 
That's why we can, be, we can be grieved with various trials, Peter says, and still we have joy inexpressible and full of glory. You see, this is what, this is what it's all about. And so there is the issue this morning. Again, I'm touching upon these things. I don't want to go over time. But there is, we see, in a sense, a baptism of suffering. But there's three in my mind, three inaugural baptisms. And I've made myself, I think, clear on that. And I'm sure there's some will have some thoughts and, and so forth. But next week, I want to, next week I want to look at the issue of laying on of hands because there are some things I could have ventured into now but I didn't want to because the next principle or elementary principle is the laying on of hands. And this is another uh, uh, inaugural uh, reality or truth that we must understand how it applies to the Christian life. Otherwise, we'll venture into extreme error and we've seen that in modern Pentecostalism again where there's a, there's, a, there's a hastiness of this laying on of hands and so forth. So we must understand the doctrine, we must make a proper application of it, to, and then we always walk in truth and with the blessing of God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you. Lord, for the word of God that has come to us this morning. My God, I pray that we would, Lord, understand these elementary principles of Christ. And Lord, I do ask God that you would help us to have a, not only a, reality, uh, a grasp in, our, in revelation and understanding, but also, Lord, experientially in our walk with you. And so I pray, O oh God, that as we would go forth, Lord, we would walk in these truths knowing our position in Christ, that we have been baptised into Christ. That is our foundation. Lord, the water baptism that relates to that, and Lord, being baptised with the Holy Spirit, Lord, that gives us power to be a witness for Christ, to stand up and to boldly proclaim this gospel, just as Peter, Lord, on that day, was filled with boldness, where in only days prior, Lord, he was denying you for fear, of rejection, but when he received the power, Lord, he spoke under the the power and anointing of the Holy Spirit. God, empower us, Lord, to be witnesses, to stand up in this generation, Lord, to not be ashamed of the gospel, to Lord, to stand up against the issues, the social issues of our day. Let us, Lord, not fear the repercussions, not fear, Lord, the rejection, and even persecution that may come, Lord, but we will stand and we will preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in doing so, Lord, I pray that we would see a harvest of souls come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Lord, build your church. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right.